You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. We're in week four of Going Deeper, and if you want to follow along the text, we're going to start with Galatians, the fourth chapter, verse 19, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, so if you're, uh, <clears throat> I apologize, there are no blanks, and that's just a short week. Uh, I had to have the outline done. I just didn't have it, so you can blame me if you are a blank person, all right? And I mean that in the conventional sense, a blank person, okay? Don't fill in any words there. On June the 30th of this year, there was a story in the New York Post about a Russian tourist who was visiting Greece, and uh, one day, while on her air mattress, she nearly died, they found her floating seven miles away from shore. Her family realized she was gone, and they notified uh, the authorities there at the hotel when she did not return back to the room after a late evening swim. They found her 21 hours later, still on her air mattress, as I said, seven miles from the shore. They're not sure what happened. They found air rescue, saw her, spotted her, and they finally rescued her. But they weren't sure what happened. Did she fall asleep on the air mattress uh, and then drift away from the shore or what? But the, the... the authorities there said that there, were, there was one thing in particular that was true that day, and the currents were extremely strong that pulled her away from the shore. But they also said she was very, very fortunate to be alive. Life at the beach is one of those things. It's laid back, it's easy, it's fun. But if you're not careful, it's easy to drift when you're at the beach. And the truth is, it's easy to drift in life as well. It's important to know the truth about life because if you don't know it, you will drift from it very easily. And that's what happened to these churches in Galatia. It's part of why Paul wrote this letter. False teachers had convinced the Galatians to start following a different path, and they started drifting as a result. Drift drifting will happen, so we need to take measures to prevent it. So here's the key point in our talk today. Truth keeps us from drifting. So focus on truth. Truth keeps us from drifting. So focus on the truth. In, in Galatians, the fourth chapter, starting with verse 19 and 20, Paul writes these words, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Now there's a lot that Paul says in this to the Galatians here. His language reveals deep affection and concern for them, first of all. But it also reveals a perplexity about their conduct and their behavior. Paul wants to remind the Galatians about the relationship that he had established with them when he planted this church. It's a relationship that emphasized the love that he had for them. The care and concern is expressed in these intimate uh, terms that he uses when he's talking about childbirth. You know, an expecting mother will go through a lot for her child. And Paul is using the same vernacular 
to remind the Galatians of the sacrifices that he had made for them so that they might know Jesus Christ. Paul was driven to this extreme language by the Galatians' decision to follow the Judaizers' message. Now, remember, we've been talking about these guys, the Judaizers. They're a group who required following parts of the Old Testament law in addition to accepting Jesus through the grace that Paul taught them. And Paul went to great lengths to bring this gospel to this region of Galatia. And now he has to continue to bear these birthing pains, if you will, again and again until the Galatians will respond to his warnings. You're on the wrong path, Galatia. He wants them to recognize the fact that what the Judaizers are teaching is not truth. And he wants them to reject that message of these false teachers. In verse 20, Paul expressed his desire in two words, to be with. He wanted to be with the Galatians. You know, letters, they're limited, aren't they? I mean, they're important and they mean a lot. They communicate our thoughts, but they're often a poor substitute for face-to-face interaction. This is particularly true in light of the highly charged arguments and the, potential, the potentiality of serious consequences of the Galatians rejecting the gospel in order to follow the false teachings of the Judaizers. Somehow Paul feels a little bit handcuffed to be just writing a letter. He wishes he could be there. Paul's desire would be that the Galatians not listen to these siren calls of these false teachings. He wanted them to remain true to the word of truth that he had proclaimed to them. But he has a hunch that they have started to drift away from that. In verses 21 to the end of the chapter, Paul employs... And a a literary term we, we would probably define as an allegory. And he uses it to demonstrate the superiority of the freedom that is found in faith in Jesus Christ. He compares the freedom to the slavery that comes through the message of the Judaizers. And that's going to be a comparison throughout this entire remainder of the chapter. In verse 21, he says, tell me. You who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? Paul challenges the readers or the listeners of this letter who want to be under the law to consider carefully what the law actually says. Know what you're getting into is his message. Paul's wording suggests that the Galatians hadn't fully bought into the Judaizers' message to this point. But they have begun to observe some of the practices, some of the Jewish feasts, some of the celebrations. Are you not aware of what the law says? Do you ever pick up a contract and there's all of that legalese in there, and there's several pages of it, and they say, hey, read this before you sign it? And so you sit down and you start reading it, and you're going, I don't have any idea what I'm reading. I wish I'd gone to law school And then what happens? You start scanning it and you're acting like you're reading it, right? And this is only your house or a car or, you know, a business or whatever. It's no big deal. (laughs) You probably should know what's in those 18 pages of fine print. Or maybe it's just the terms terms and conditions. And and the online service gives you that one button to bypass all of that and just click it and go on. 
And we do that, don't we? All of us do it. Reading the fine print is so important because it tells you what you're getting into. Bad things often happen when we don't read the fine print. For instance, medicines. How many of you have ever taken a medicine where the side effects were way worse than whatever it was why you took the medicine in the first place? Did that ever happen to you? If you had read the fine print, you'd have probably still taken the medicine. But you would have known why you had explosive diarrhea at that point, right? Sorry, I just threw that in. It's free. Or maybe some of us do this online. We go online, we are so enamored by something, and so boom, we buy it. Like this guy, he, uh, he saw this carpet, it's an embroidered uh, area rug. He said, yeah, I got to have that, the price is too good to be- believe. And so he orders it, and then it arrives, and this is what he got. <laughs> it was for a dollhouse. Maybe should have read the fine print, I don't know. And then this lady... She thought that chair is going to look great in my sunroom. And so she ordered it. And what happened? She got it. All right. Perfect for Barbie, but not for, for mom. So, and then there's, this, then there's this in advertising. I love this. Free eye test. Read the fine print. When you spend $99 or more. Okay. It's free. Hey, it's free. When you spend $99 or more. Yeah. If you don't read the fine print, guess what? You're going to be spending $99 or more for a free eye test. We sometimes decide we're not going to read the fine print, and as a result, we pay a price for it. Hopefully, it's not too significant or severe. Nothing, though, is hidden if, technically, it's in the fine print. But you have to read it in order to know what you're about to get into. And that's what Paul wanted the Galatians to realize. They needed to know what they were getting into with the Judaizers. In verse 21, at the very end of verse 21, he says, Are you not aware of what the law says? Which literally is translated, Do you not hear the law? This is an interesting interesting part of the text. This reflects the common practice that was... They used in Judaism as well as in the early church of reading Scripture aloud so that all the people could come under it and hear it with the goal of internalizing it and then acting on it. Not everybody had a copy of of Scripture. In fact, most people didn't. So they would just read this out loud and people would absorb it and then they would act on it, which is a key point in this text. Listen to God's Word. The reason you want to listen to it is the truth is in it. It's, the, it's best when we expose ourselves to it on a daily basis. So we, we listen to God's Word on a daily basis, and we hear it, we internalize it, and then we act on it. And if we don't, one of the consequences of that is we may very possibly begin to drift from it. Verse 22 says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. Paul does not directly quote the Old Testament here, but he reminds the reader of the story of Abraham and Sarah. Paul's most likely responding to the scriptural-based argument that the Judaizers had been making. This is Paul's rebuttal to that. Now, I'm not going to read the entire story of Abraham's life. It's too long. But I want to give you a quick review 
of his story. He's 75 years of age, and God calls him to uproot his family and move to Canaan. And God, in the process, promises to him that he's going to be the father of many descendants, a mighty nation. Now, here's what's interesting about that. There's a serious problem to that promise, and that is that Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren. She had not been able to have children. And that was a big deal in that culture, to have children and grandchildren. They had none, zero. But God had a plan. He was waiting until both of them were well past childbearing years. So there'd be no question that God was the one that made this childbirth happen. He was going to be the one who would perform a miracle by sending this promised son. Ten years later, Abraham is now 85, and the promised son has not yet arrived. And so Sarah starts to get impatient, and she suggests to Abraham, hey, why don't you marry Hagar, my maid, and have a child with her? At least you could try. Now, that was legal in that culture at that time. That society, every, that was not frowned upon. Polygamy was part of the culture. But it wasn't part of God's plan. But Abraham followed his wife's suggestion, and he marries her servant, Hagar. A year later, Hagar gets pregnant, and Sarah gets insanely jealous. This is not good. Not for Abraham, not for anybody in the house. Things get so difficult in the home that Sarah actually kicks Hagar out. She's pregnant. She kicks her out. But the Lord intervenes, and he sends Hagar back, and he promises to her that he's going to take care of her and her son. And when Abraham is 86, Hagar has a son, and he is called Ishmael. Abraham is now 99. And God speaks to him again, and he reaffirms the promise that he is going to have a son, and he's going to be the father of a mighty nation, and he should call his son Isaac. And a year later, Abraham turns 100, and he has a son. Isaac arrives, and this creates a brand new problem in the house. You see, for 14 years, Ishmael has been his father's only son, the apple of his eye. And now there's a new kid who has dad's intention, full attention, seemingly all the time. Three years later, Abraham is now 103 years of age. And this is really important for our text. It's customary for the Jews to wean their children around three years of age. And they always made a big deal about this. They'd have a big celebration. And at the feast of Isaac's weaning, sounds weird to us, but it's true, At that feast, Ishmael starts to mock his younger brother Isaac, which created the most trouble they've had in the home. There's only one solution to this problem. Hagar and her son Ishmael have to go. So with a broken heart, Abraham sent his son away because that is what the Lord told him to do. Now on the surface, this story of Abraham's life It appears to be nothing more than an internal family problem. But beneath the surface are some truths that teach us some vitally important uh, lessons. This story has already been laid out for the Galatian Christians. They will know that the slave woman is Hagar and the free woman is Sarah. Paul takes the argument to his opponents 
and he does it on their turf, on their terms. He shows the validity of the gospel that he had promoted to the Galatians long before by showing the irrationality of the message of the Judaizers. Look at verse 23, says, His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. He's talking about Abraham now. But his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. The validity of Paul's argument is now getting emphasized. He's, going, he's making his point here. The contrast between the son of the slave woman and the son of the free woman is the birth of the slave woman's son resulted from natural procreation. Nothing new here. But the son of the free woman is the result of the miraculous intervention of God. It happened because God intervened to fulfill his promise. The implication of this verse is that it is faith in Jesus that lines up with God's promise to Abraham. And the son of the promise represents those who rely by faith in God's promises of salvation through Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 24, he says, These things have been, are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. You might circle that word, slaves. This is Hagar, he says. And here, Paul summarizes the main point of this allegory. It's it's to contrast and compare these two women or these two ideologies they represent. These two women, Sarah and Hagar, represent the two different covenants. Like Like Sarah and Hagar, on the one hand is freedom that is found in Jesus, and on the other hand is legalism that is found in the Judaizers. The women represent two covenants. Now let's talk about the covenants just real quickly. The two covenants are the old covenant, which Hagar represented, and is the one the Judaizers wanted the Galatians to conform to, and the new covenant, which is represented by Sarah, which is Christ-centered. And this is what Paul had been teaching them all along. And Paul also adds, Hagar represents slavery. Remember I told you to circle that? Her children would be slaves. This slavery is what Paul had been warning against all along. Because in Christ, there's freedom. Under the law, there is slavery. Verse 25, now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. You might circle, present city of Jerusalem. Kind of interesting point there. Because she is in slavery with her children. Hagar is in slavery with her children. Paul associates Hagar with Mount Sinai. Why did he do that? Because Hagar represents the giving of the Mosaic law, and that happened on Mount Sinai. So that's her place, the holy mountain of Mount Sinai. And the Judaizers are identified in this text. Paul calls them the present city of Jerusalem. Told you to circle that. He calls them that because Jerusalem was the center of Jewish practices. The Judaizers were making the argument that these practices must continue as a proper expression of Christianity. And Paul is flexing up against that. He's saying, no, you don't. All you need is Jesus. Verse 26. 
But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. Now, we are getting deep into this, right? This is an allegory, remember. This is an allegory. So Hagar represented slavery and Mount Sinai and the Old Testament law. Now Paul contrasts Hagar with the Jerusalem that is above. Revelation talks about the new Jerusalem, which is free, he says. There's no bondage here. It's freedom. And it is our mother. The idea of the heavenly Jerusalem was something that was widespread within Judaism. So Jews who are hearing this would have probably leaned in like, what are you talking about? we've We've heard about this. This is important to them. Paul uses this comparison to further his case that freedom in Christ is found in the gospel, not in the law. You can try to keep the law all you want for the entire length of your life, and you will never, ever accomplish it. But under Christ, there is grace. His blood was an atonement that washes away the sins of the world. And the children of Sarah, the children of the promise, are free. They're not in slavery. They're not in bondage. And the Galatians have a choice to make. Paul's calling them to a crossroads. He's saying, you must choose which path you're going to take. Is it going to be the path of freedom or is it going to be the path of slavery? And he's boiling it down to that simple of a question. Verse 27, I found to be probably the hardest verse in this entire text. He says, for it is written, be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now, Sarah, you remember, was this barren wife of Abraham's, and ultimately her fortunes were completely reversed when she was 90 years of age, when God granted her a son as the fulfillment of the promise that he had made to her husband, Abraham. I love the way the message translation renders this verse. It says, remember what Isaiah wrote, because he's quoting the prophet Isaiah. Rejoice, barren woman who bears no children. Shout and cry out. Women, woman who has no birth pangs, because the children of the barren woman now surpass the children of the chosen woman. What's he saying here? Paul's quoting the prophet Isaiah to underscore his point, and the point is this. The new covenant will excel far beyond the old. Grace is going to go way beyond what the law ever hoped to accomplish. And then in verse 28, he says, Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of the promise. Now, if I have lost you at all, come back to me here at verse 28, because this is a great verse for every person who's a follower of Christ, or even if you're investigating this man named Jesus. He says, now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, the promised child, you are children of promise. In this verse, Paul addresses the Galatians directly. He encourages them to think of themselves as Sarah's children, just like Isaac. You are children of the promise, he says. Thus, there's no need to adopt this Jewish legalistic lifestyle 
And despite the Judaizers' claims, believers in Christ are children of the heavenly Jerusalem through God's promise to Abraham. The Galatians who follow Paul's teaching embrace freedom in Christ, and they rejected the Judaizers' gospel. They are indeed. These Galatians who embraced the gospel that Paul was preaching, they were indeed the children of the promise. We get to this point in the text, and there seems to be a question that Paul is presenting, and that is this. Which path are you on? Now, he's saying that more than likely for the Galatians to ponder, which path? But also for us, 2,000 years later, it's still relevant to us. Are you trying to get to heaven by being just good enough, as though God may... He may grade on a curve and you'll get in. That's not how the law works. We know if you violated just one aspect of the law, just one facet of the law, you're guilty of the whole law, Paul tells us. Are you on that path? Or are you on the path where you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you trusted that his blood that was shed on the cross would wash away your sins? And give you a relationship with your heavenly Father. Verse 29 says, At that point, the Son born according to the flesh persecuted the Son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. Now he's talking practical to them. He's winding up this allegory and he's talking real practical to the Galatians. He spotlights their church and their experiences within their area, that region. Just as Ishmael, the slave son, persecuted Isaac, the son of the promise, Paul points out now the Judaizers are persecuting the Galatian Christians who are not buying into their gospel because they, too, are sons of the promise. Paul wanted the Galatians to recognize those who would confuse and harass by distorting the message of the gospel, those who try to rob them of their freedom in Christ. And this is nothing new. This has been going on forever and ever, that evil is trying to attack and persecute and undermine the purposes of God and the people of God. It's always been the case that the son of the slave woman would resent the son of the promise and persecute him. And Paul's argument is also subtly shifting in this verse. As he contrasts the son born according to the flesh with the son born by the power of the Spirit, Paul emphasizes again, there are two kinds of people represented by these two sons. The children of the slave woman who live their lives based on legal practices under the law and the children of the free woman who live by grace under the direction of the Holy Spirit. He's defining these paths even more succinctly. And he's asking them, which one are you going to walk? He closes the allegory with verses 30 and 31, and he says, but what does Scripture say? Which is interesting for a whole other sermon, but that's a great question we should ask periodically. What does Scripture say? 
And then he quotes Genesis 21.10. He says, get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. In verse 31, therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Paul exhorts the Galatians to get rid of the slave woman and her son, which was a direct reference to the false teachers around them. This is his conclusion to his argument. The Judaizers' understanding of Scripture results in bondage to legalistic practices. They don't make a person righteous before God, and they don't grant salvation. Thus, the Judaizers are the ones who must be cast out, and their message thoroughly rejected and repudiated. It is the children of the free woman who we... who are those who believe in Jesus Christ. And they are the ones who will inherit the promises of God. So why does any of this matter to us today? Monty, this happened 2,000 years ago. Why does it matter to us today? Well, interestingly, interestingly enough, individual churches and individual Christians are making the same mistakes today that the Galatians were making 2,000 years ago, because legalism is one of the major problems among Christians today. Keep in mind that legalism doesn't mean the, set, it doesn't mean the setting of spiritual s- standards. That's not a bad thing at all, setting spiritual standards. Legalism means worshiping those standards and thinking that we are spiritual because we obey those standards. It also means judging other believers on the basis of of those standards. A person can refrain from smoking and drinking and watching R-rated movies and a whole host of other sins, but that doesn't still make him or her spiritual. You see, the Pharisees had very high standards, and yet they were the ones who had crucified Jesus. The old nature of sin that we all battle with, it's what tempts us, it's what causes us to want to go away from the, the truth of God's love. That old nature of sin loves legalism. It loves it because it gives the old nature a chance to look good. The Christian who claims to be spiritual because of what he doesn't do is only fooling himself. It takes more than limiting your behaviors in order to make a fruitful spiritual life. It takes a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the Savior. There's no doubt that the Judaizers were polished and persuasive people. They had credentials from religious authorities. They had high standards and were careful in what they ate and drank. They had rules and standards to cover every area of life, making it easy for their followers to know who was spiritual and who wasn't. But the Judaizers were leading the people of Galatia, into slavery and not freedom. And the people did not know the difference. They didn't see that they were drifting. Do you know the truth? Do you personally know the truth? Or have you drifted? Have you been deceived by the current thought and beliefs of this culture? Or have you been listening to God through His Word? What path will you take? 
Some of you are on that path and you're walking with Jesus and it's vibrant and it's alive. But if you step off of that path or you neglect his word or you just result, you, you, the only result of influence of the word is what you get here on Sundays, it will more than likely be you who starts to drift. Maybe you've never taken that step. Maybe you've just, you're at, you're at that point in your life where you're going, I got to do something else. This isn't working. And so you're checking out God and you're, you're just kind of saying, hey, you know, why not? <laughs> Works for some people. The truth is there's a lot of philosophies, there are lots, a lot of ideologies in this world that will tell you to go this way and that way. And they're going to promise you all kinds of things. Good life, perfect life, you know, freedom, peace, all those things. But only Jesus has been able to actually deliver that. So are you going to go the way of Hagar and the law and slavery and try to be good enough? Or are you going to follow the way of Sarah and the promise, grace, and freedom? Jesus said this in John 8. 31 and 32. He said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Paul's just repeating what Jesus taught a few years earlier. Truth will set you free. If we don't hold on to it, there's a high probability we're going to drift from it. Don't find yourself seven miles off the shore because of strong currents in this culture that pulled you away. Stay close to him. And if you've never, if you've never taken that step to walk this path with him, man, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. I'll be right down in front. I'll, I'll stick around as long as it matters, as long as it takes. I'd love to talk to you. Let's pray together. Lord, I am so grateful to get to do this every single week to talk about you. and Lord, I just thank you for what you've meant in my life. It's fitting this weekend we'd be talking about these two paths because there's such a distinctness between the two. One that says, hey, you just got to earn your way in and you're never good enough. And one that says, give your heart to Jesus and he'll, he'll wash away your sins and he'll make you part of his father's family. God, we thank you for so many of our blessings. We're most grateful for your truth, as Jesus said, because it sets us free. Yet you don't force us to accept it. You give us freedom as a choice. And so, Lord, I pray today that you will move anyone in this room who has never taken that step of faith to take a really good hard look at it you're not going to force them. But God, I pray that they would recognize that all roads lead to destruction except that one, the one that Jesus invites us to join him on, that part of the journey. It's not easy. Sometimes it's actually downright difficult. But we know in the end, God, that we end with you. And all along the journey, we have the promise of your presence through your spirit guiding our steps and your word that gives us insight and direction and a family of believers to be a part of here who love us and will guide us and support us. God, I pray no one would miss out on that 
promise of everlasting life with you through a relationship with Jesus. I pray this in his precious name.